So we're in a series that we're, we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. And we're looking at just verse chapter by chapter, verse by verse, see, to get acquainted with Jesus and, and what he's all about. And we've got to the place in chapter 2. The chapter 2 is really formed by a series of encounters between Jesus and the religious elite, the, the teachers of religious law in the society at that time. And so what we're going to see in this whole chapter, we're calling this mini kind of mini-series, we're calling it Challenging Religion, because Jesus is going to take on some of the predominant ways of thinking and interacting that religious people seem to fall into, whether it was back in the first century or whether it's today in our society as well. So we're going to look at how Jesus has this way of taking what seem like common sense religious assumptions and just flipping them. Like turn them inside out and you go, well, you know, you've been thinking about things a certain way. He says, here's a whole different way to think about things, and let me tell you why. So he's going to do that today as we, as we talk uh, about Mark chapter 2 in verses 13 through 17. So we're going to read those verses in a minute, but if you have your Bible or a Bible app, we pr- encourage you to uh, follow along with us as we go through these, these verses. Now society, you look around, and religious society in particular, but I think generally speaking, in all of our society, would say there's really two kinds of people in the world. There's good people and there's bad people, right? And when I say good people, I don't know who comes to your mind, Mother Teresa, who I don't know who that is, but how we define that maybe depends on your perspective about life or, or whatever. And then I say bad people, you're going to have a certain group of people in mind or certain faces that come to mind, you know? We think of like, okay, if Mother Teresa's way over here, then over here is like, Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler or something like that, right? And so we have uh, good people, what? Good people are people who are kind to others, right? Help other people. They do their recycling. They're not negative. They, maybe they're smart. They work. We you, we've all have a, a definition in our mind. Society has this idea. And bad people are, of course, serial killers and dictators and you know, child molesters and et cetera, right? That. And, and everybody else is, is in one camp or another, right? So what I want to do today is examine that whole framework to say, is that really an accurate view of reality from Jesus' perspective? And, and to think about how religious people and religious institutions take those two categories and how they use them and how they employ that way of thinking. Because um, we're going to look at different people today who met Jesus, who fall into different camps, different kinds of people, and I want to see what do we think of those people, but more importantly, what did Jesus say about those different kinds of people that he's interacting with today? So let's read uh, the text. I'll have it on the screen and follow along with me. Mark chapter uh, 2, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, 
Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come, not, I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. So again, last week we saw Jesus starting to have run-in with the, these religious teachers. And, and, and we saw that um, it, last week's episode, they aimed their scorn at him for saying some things that he, they didn't think he should have said. And today the criticism is aimed partly at Jesus, but also more largely it's really aimed at the people that Jesus was spending time with. And we'll see then, um, actually we'll see the very first of them, uh, we're going to call him the tax collector. And he represents one class of people in the society at, at that time. So let's take a look at this tax collector. Jesus is still in Capernaum like he has been. He was there last week and in previous weeks, um, in previous verses. He's teaching along the Sea of Galilee. People are coming around uh, to hear him. And, and there he meets this guy named Levi. Now, Levi had another name. He's also known as Matthew. And that's m- maybe how you might be more familiar with this guy, Matthew. He's sitting at this tax collector's booth doing business. Basically, his job was to collect commercial taxes for the Roman Empire. And so he's doing that in the heart of town, in the commercial center of town. And... Um, what we're going to see here is Jesus interacts with him is that Jesus has completely different standards for looking at people and evaluating people than religion does. Okay, so, so let's look again at verses 13 and 14. We saw Jesus out on the lakeshore teaching the crowds. He walks along and he sees Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Now, Jesus is doing some pretty scandalous things in this passage. I don't know if you appreciate how scandalous it is that what just happened here in these verses. So, first of all, we see he invites this guy Levi to follow him, to be his disciple. A disciple is simply one who follows another. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you're a disciple of Jesus. Well, the rabbis of that age, they went about gathering disciples. That's how they would gain influence. That's how they would... Uh, multiply their, their influence and their voice throughout society. They would gain disciples around them and they teach, teach them in, in small groups, in cadres. And Jesus was doing very much the same thing. We saw in chapter 1 that he called Peter and Andrew, James and John, to leave their fishing business behind and to come follow him. And they, and they put down their nets and they began to follow Jesus. And now he's doing it again, this time with this guy Levi, the tax collector. And at Jesus' information, at Jesus' invitation, Levi just gets up on the spot immediately and he goes to follow Jesus. Now we don't know whether they had met before, if, if he knew Levi, if Levi knew him at all, but here's this pivotal moment. Jesus has come and he and he does. He follows him. Now, that doesn't seem scandalous so far. But it really is, and here's why. Here's a couple reasons why. One reason that this was like shocking is that Jesus did not select the religious professionals to be his disciples, right? You know, it it was a highly religious culture, and the people who were super religious were were held in great esteem. They were really respected and honored. Now, they might not have been liked a lot by everybody, but they were certainly seen as as the top tier of that society. And Jesus instead went totally outside of the mainstream. He didn't go taking applications at rabbi school to find his followers. So what Jesus thought calling Levi to follow, that's that's like me being chosen to ride in the Tour de France. 
It's not happening. Or, or you being, uh, being chosen in the, in the WNBA draft, right? I'm sorry, you're not that good, right? But that's, that's how shocking it was for Jesus to go outside the mainstream to pick a guy like Levi. And then even more than that, it's even more scandalous when you realize that Levi's a tax collector. That's not a good thing in that culture. And how many of you work for the IRS? All right, you don't have to admit that if you don't want to, but um, it's a totally different scene. So don't think IRS, right? Think about a, a totally manipulative, extortionate system that, well, maybe you are thinking about the IRS. I don't know. <laughs> I just say, wait, wait a sec there, you know. Um, tax collectors, this is way beyond choosing fishermen. Fishermen were not necessarily like super respected, whatever, but tax collectors were actually hated. Yeah, I've never hated anybody who worked for the IRS. <laughs> I'm just thinking of those of you who worked there, maybe you've hated someone who worked at the IRS. I don't know. Anyway, I digress. Here's the deal. You've got to understand this about tax collectors in the Roman Empire. They were, they were very much despised, partly because they're, they're in a business partnership with the Roman Empire, the, these oppressive conquerors who've come in and taken away the, the Israel's freedom, and they're holding them under their thumb, and these tax collectors are in league with them, doing business for the hated oppressors, who not only were, were oppressive, but they were also Gentiles, and so... To have that role would take anybody who's a tax collector and completely push them to the margins of Jewish society. They really became outsiders there. These are not guys you would, who would have felt comfortable going to the synagogue, even though they were Jewish, right? And then secondly, a lot of them used really shady and violent tactics to collect their taxes, because the way it worked is that if you're a tax collector, you're like an agent of the Roman government, and the more, the more you collect, the bigger your cut's going to be. And so people would use all kinds of extortion, all kinds of uh, cheating and muscle to try to get more wealth for themselves. It's kind of like, I think it's a little bit like uh, gang criminals running a racket, where, you know, backed up by, by muscle, where you just hurt people to get more money. That's kind of the, what the gig was all about. Now, we don't really know much about Levi personally. Before, before he met Jesus, was he one of the worst? Was he kind of more a benign version of the tax collector? We don't know. But either way, he wasn't respectable. He's not a religious elite. Jesus would not have met him and found him in the synagogue. So what was it that qualified Levi to be a potential leader, and eventually you know him as Matthew, right? He being one of the twelve, uh, the twelve apostles, wrote the book, of, the first book of the of the New Testament. What qualified him to become that kind of person, that follower? I, th- this is the great thing, where Jesus sees it differently. What qualified Levi was simply that he was willing to follow Jesus without reservation. That's it. Now, if we were given the job of finding some core disciples for Jesus who were going to go on and become great leaders and stuff, who would we look for? Who would we pick? Would we have picked Levi? Not sure we would. But I want you to read on here just to see just how scandalous Jesus' decision here to, to call him was. So on one side, we have, we have Levi and what he represents in that society as a tax collector. But I want to look now at the other side. I want to look at the Pharisees. These are the polar opposite of the tax collectors. These are the most religious people in society. They're at the heart of everything, the synagogue and everything else. They're a highly respected group. 
And so I want you to notice how these two groups get along and to see the differences between them and how these religious people thought about the people who were kind of outside of religion. So let's look at verses 15 and 16 again. Levi invites Jesus to his, and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? So here's another really scandalous thing that Jesus did. He spent time socializing with disreputable and unworthy people. He accepts this dinner invitation from Levi. And verse 15 tells us who was there. This is an important detail that Levi did, didn't just have Jesus and the disciples over, but he invited all his friends and all the people in his social circles. And who are they? They're, well, they're the other tax collectors, his professional colleagues. And then it says just a general blanket statement, other disreputable sinners. At least from the point of view of the society as a whole, these were the dregs of, uh, of the culture. These were um, the, the lowlifes, the rejects of society, the people who were farthest from the religious ideal of the day. Matthew says, these are, uh, these are my friends. These are who I'm going to invite to meet you, Jesus. Who would that be in our world? Who would be considered in that class in our culture, in our society today? I've often thought about that, wondering like, okay... Kind of what, what, would the, what would this gathering look like? Well, it might have drug dealers there. It might have hookers and pimps. It might have the guy who runs the porn sites. It might have the guy who runs the abortion clinic. It might have some gay couples there. Some transgendered people would be there. It might have some illegal immigrants or, or just a lot of people that, that our society might, especially the religious elements of our society, might really look down upon. It's like Jesus is saying to church people, he says, no, I'm not coming to the potluck Friday night because I have a dinner party with the traces. And so that's not all. It's not just that Jesus socialized with these people, but it's, Mark says, he points out, many people of this kind were among Jesus' followers. So it's like he was, he was saying, yeah, come be my disciples. I know who you are. Come be my disciples. Now, here's where we meet the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism. Judaism is divided into some different kinds of groups with different points of emphasis, kind of like denominations of Judaism at the time. And the, the Pharisees were reformers because in the period between the Old and the New Testament, Judaism had been influenced significantly by Greek and Mediterranean culture. Alexander the Great had conquered the whole Middle Eastern area, and his successors had been ruling there for a couple hundred years. And during that time, the whole Jewish nation had become more and more influenced and, and more and more compromised with that foreign culture. And so the Pharisees arose as a way to call Judaism back to its Old Testament roots, back to being faithful to God again. And so they were really serious about obeying God. They were really serious about purifying Jewish life and religion. In fact, the word Pharisee means like a purifier. And that explains, partly explains, I think, their response when they saw who Jesus was having dinner with. That Jesus wasn't being pure in their mind. And so they said, whoa, whoa, something's wrong with this picture. Now, in the culture of that day, 
there's a certain intimacy associated with eating a meal together. That's still part of our culture to some extent, although we eat fast food and we go running around. But if you invite someone into your home and you go to the trouble of, of preparing food, and you're going to spend an evening with them, there's a certain intimacy with that, right? And so in that culture, even more so, because you're saying, I'm letting these people into my life. I'm letting these people into my world, behind the curtain, so to speak. And so, so there's something significant going on here. The Pharisees are upset about it. And so they ask Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with scum like that? Now that reveals two things about them, two things about their perspective on stuff. One is that they believe that people far from God are just scum. They believe that, that people who disregard the religious standards are worthless and contemptible. And then the other thing is that it, it shows us their idea about Jesus. It confirmed in their mind that Jesus could not possibly be legitimately speaking for God. Because if he was, he'd be more like us. He'd be the purifier. He would never go anywhere near those kind of people. In fact, there's another incident that kind of expresses this. It plays this out a little bit more for us. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus accepts an invitation to go eat with a Pharisee, with a guy named Simon. So he, he gets a dinner invitation to Simon's house. So we see Jesus, by the way, as an equal opportunity dinner guest. He'll go with the Pharisees, he'll go with the tax collectors. Wherever he's invited, he goes. And it says, Luke says that during that meal, a certain immoral woman, in, and that's the quote in, in, from the text, she invited herself into uh, the Pharisee's house, just broke just came right in, and she kneels at Jesus' feet, and she starts anointing his feet with this expensive perfume, and it says, with her own tears. She's obviously deeply emotionally moved by Jesus, and, it, and we, it, because he's forgiven her. But look at Luke chapter 7, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. So it's the same response we saw from the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2, right? Well, believe me, Jesus knew what kind of woman was touching him. It's just that he didn't see her the same way that the Pharisees saw her. He didn't evaluate her or understand her in the same way that they did. But you know what? I think the response of the Pharisees, I don't think that's uncommon today. I think there's been like religious, super zealous religious people uh, ever since day one, not just in, in the realm of Christianity, but in other groups too, who, um, you know, have this kind of attitude to people who aren't part of them. Then maybe you grew up in a setting like that. Maybe you grew up in a religious setting where the very most active members judged people who were not part of your group or people who were kind of part of your group but weren't really living up to it. Not uncommon. I want you to think back about your own experience in life. Have you ever thought of another group as the scum of the earth? Have you ever looked at and thought about others and said, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. See, that's, that's the heart of the Pharisees creeping in. You know, the Pharisees were not all bad. They wanted to honor God. They wanted, to, they wanted to, people to obey God and follow him fully, but what they, they failed was to see themselves and to see God the way that God sees people. 
So some of you can relate to them a little bit. Maybe you don't want to be that way, maybe, but you feel the tug, or maybe you go, oh, for the first time I'm realizing, oh, I'm kind of like those Pharisees. Or maybe some of you can relate more with the tax collectors and disreputable sinners. Because you're going, man, I, I'm not sure about religion stuff, and I don't think the religious people are all that cool, and, and they seem kind of judgmental, and I'm not sure if I, I want to you know, live this kind of life, or I'm not sure that I'm even welcome. So I want to explore that, really the difference between the two and how that affects us today. Because religious people say there's, there's two kinds of people. There's the good and the bad. But Jesus says, no, there's more to it than that. There's a whole other factor that we're not taking into account. And he's going to reveal that to us um, in this third part of the passage. So how does Jesus respond to their criticism? He, he, he doesn't say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you're right. <laughs> no, he doesn't own that criticism at all. But he, but he goes on to explain the purpose behind the actions that they have observed. They observe that he's eating with certain people. That part is true. But he wants to, to explain to them the whole reason why he came and why he's interacting with them. And the reason we're going to see is because he intends to bring hope and forgiveness to people who know that they're sinners. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard this, this criticism, he told them, and by the way, we don't know if he's telling the disciples who are reporting it back to him or if he's telling the Pharisees themselves. But here's what he said. It's what counts. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they're sinners. This is a huge, huge insight into how Jesus sees people. And honestly, I want my, my way of seeing people to be framed by what, what Jesus says here. So number one, he does not present everybody as just okay. Jesus is not saying, look, people are mostly basically good. People are okay, you know, don't worry about it. These people are fine. These tax collectors, these disreputable, they're fine, don't worry about it. They can do whatever they want to do. He's not just saying, hey, just be true to yourself and follow your own path. He, he doesn't condone the lifestyle of these people because he asserts that just like everybody, they're needy, they're broken, they're spiritually sick, they need a remedy. He says, look, the people I'm hanging around with, they, they need something that they don't have. So he's not just presenting everybody as okay, but while the Pharisees saw needy people and scorned them, Jesus sees needy people and loves them. What a difference. And then in the, the second thing we see is that this is where he identifies the two kinds of people in the world, not the good and the bad. Yes, religion says, yeah, there's these two kinds of people. There's the righteous and there's the sinners. But Jesus says, yeah, there's two kinds of people. The first kind are people who think they're righteous, and the second kind are people who know they're sinners. That's it. That includes everybody in the whole world. There's people who think they're righteous, and there's people who know they're sinners. And that's really the the classification that makes sense in Jesus' perspective. There's people who are broken and don't realize it. There's people who are broken and know it. And that's about it. Now, the first kind think that they're righteous. They think that they're better than others. They think that they're more loved by God. 
And that's a huge problem with religious people in particular. Not just religious people, but religious people have a hard time seeing that, that they're broken too. Because that, re, that religious activity masks the spiritual need. All the moral behavior and all the church activity and all the rest keeps people from seeing that maybe they're, they're not as worthy before God as they think they are. Maybe they're not as special or maybe they're not better than other people like they think they are. Because they're doing all this stuff that other people aren't doing. But it's not limited to religious people because there's plenty of secular, irreligious people who are broken and don't admit it. To me, it's like it, it conjures up in my mind this picture of the person who's coughing up a lung and they have a fever and they can't walk up the stairs and they're puking all over the place and they say, I'm not sick. Maybe that's your husband, I don't know. It's like, no, I'm fine. But it does seem to be a particular problem with religious people, I think. But, you know, it's that person with stage four cancer and they haven't really noticed anything wrong yet. You know, and suddenly they have a headache or they feel a little weak and, they, and they, maybe they eventually go to the doctor and they find out that there's cancer throughout their whole body, but they didn't really, didn't really know it. Or maybe they just refuse to go to the doctor because they don't think, that's just a headache. They don't think there's a problem. They can't get healed. I was talking to Pastor Brian Dwyer about this, and he was sharing with me how he, this is like his, how his, his grandfather passed away. He was fine. He, everything seemed fine. He was just going about his normal life, and he just, one day, boom, was done. And they found out that he'd been pretty sick all along the way. So there's the people who are broken but won't admit it and don't know it. And then there's the kind of people who are broken and they realize it and understand it. They know that they're sinners. They know there's something wrong. They might not use the, the Christian or biblical language, but they know there's something wrong. They know that, that, that their life isn't what they hoped it would be or dreamed it would be. They know that they've wronged other people and wronged themselves. They know they can't measure up. And maybe they've become hopeless. Maybe they tried the religion route and all it did was make them feel more condemned than they already were. But their heart tells them that things are not right and they need help. So for the first group, the next step is to become what Jesus calls poor in spirit, to become humble. And for the second group, the next step is to turn to the doctor to be healed. And Jesus said, that is why I came. That's why I came. He says, so he says to his critics, let me help you understand this. Because what I hear you saying, it's like I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like if Jesus is saying, like, like what, I, what I hear you saying is you're challenging the doctor, saying, like, hey, doctor, why do you spend so much time around sick people? What's wrong with that? Jesus says, if you understand that you understand why I came. I came for this kind of person who knows their need. So he entered into our world to call us to himself, to invite us to find healing for our brokenness. You know, here he is with the, with the, at Levi's house, the party. He's not, just, he's not just partying. He's not just lighthearted revelry. He's not just, you know, hanging out, buddying up with the guys. And it's not like he didn't care about how they lived. You remember he met the, the woman who was taken in adultery, and he, he forgave her, but he said, go and sin no more. And so he's engaged in their world to teach them God's heart and God's ways. And to forgive them as they 
turned to him, to embrace them as they came to him and followed him. So I look at this um, passage, and this brought up a practical question in my mind. Because I hear this, I hear a question all the time from people, from Christians, people of moral values and so forth. Um, They go, it takes a couple different forms. One form is like this. People say to me, like, I've been invited to my gay cousin's wedding. What do I do with that? Or another form, it says, my, my niece converted to another religion. I've been invited to her baptism. What do I do with that? And what would Jesus do with that? Now, this is just me. Maybe this is just my opinion about that stuff, but here's how I read this. Based on Mark chapter 2, I think Jesus would go where he's invited. Now, the reason that people hesitate is because what I hear most often is that I don't want to, by showing up, I don't want to condone their decision. I don't want to condone their behavior. Um, But here we see with Jesus, he's present with these people, but his presence there did not mean that he condoned what they were doing. He was there to help them find God. He recognized full well that sick people need a doctor, and that's why he was there. So for me, I'd say, yeah, go. That's your decision, your conscience before God to decide what you need to do. But I think this, this passage might give us some insight about that decision. But that brings us back to the main point because what, what Jesus is saying here is really the only kind of person that can actually be saved and know God is the second kind of person. The person who's broken and knows it. The person who recognizes they're a sinner. Because a relationship with God is not about how much good you do. It's not about how worthy you can prove yourself to be. It's based only on what Jesus has done for you. What you could not do for yourself. And it only kicks in when you admit your need and you accept his provision by faith. And you turn to him as the only solution. That's why I say the second kind of person is the only one who can be saved. And if the religious self-righteous person then recognizes their need, then yes, then Jesus' arms are open. But what often happens, I've seen in in years and years of life in the church, is that all of us come to Jesus on that that very basis. We recognize our need and our sin. But what happens often for many of us over time, we start living in in the faith community and God's working transformation in our lives and we're excited and encouraged about things, changes that happen and we start to be around other religious people a lot and over time we forget where we came from. And we start to think that we earned something from God that other people didn't. And we start to think there's something special about ourselves before God and we can then start thinking too highly of ourselves and too critically of others. Every single Christian started as the second kind of person. Every single Christian started as Levi, basically, right? So how do we keep from becoming the other kind of person, the Pharisee? And here's the answer. I think, I think ultimately the answer is by living in the shadow of the cross, by living in close proximity to the cross, returning to the cross over and over and over again and returning to what it means. And I don't necessarily mean just hanging a cross in your kitchen or wearing one around your neck, although that can be a good reminder of what the cross is all about. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we could not pay for ourselves, to do for us what we were completely incapable of doing before God. 
We had no righteousness, and Jesus died in our place, and then he invested us with his righteousness before a holy father. And all of that is about the cross. When you think about the cross, it humbles us. It really humbles us. There's nothing, nothing that we were worthy to be saved. It's complete, the cross is completely contrary to spiritual pride. And yet, we are prone to get proud when we forget what Jesus did for us, and especially when we forget why we need it. We forget there's nothing about us that made God favor us. There's nothing about us that makes us worthy of his love. It's his choice. It's all about him and his mercy and his kindness. And look, here's the thing. It's not like we needed the cross back then. I needed the cross when I was in my 20s and I realized that I needed to be saved and my life was falling apart and going nowhere. I needed the cross then. It's not like I needed it then, but I don't need it now. always need God's mercy. We always need God's grace. We're always needy, broken sinners. Yes, the Holy Spirit is working transformation in us through Jesus, and we come to follow him, and there's a supernatural thing that happens. We begin to grow, but as long as we're living in this fallen world, we'll always still be broken. We'll always still be needy in some way or another. We always need him. The only difference is that God chose to love us. God chose to rescue us, and when we remember that, it's really hard to look down on other people. It's really hard to think more highly of ourselves than others because the cross makes us ask not why does Jesus eat with scum like that? The cross makes us ask why would Jesus accept scum like me? 